Good morning. My name is John Turney. I'm one of the pastors here at IGC. As David mentioned this morning, we're going to be continuing our series on the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith. And several times throughout this series, we'll be pausing, basically doubling up um, to cover a topic twice. So last week, Pastor Michael spoke on scripture reading, and this week we're going to be looking at it again, as well as I'd also like to talk about uh, from Deuteronomy 6, passing on the faith and scripture memorization. So if you would, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and as you're making your way there, it's the fifth book of the Bible. Um, I'd like to share some statistics with each of you, and I hope that we wouldn't find these as abstract numbers at a distance, but as a diagnostic that we can reflect on together as we look at God's word together this morning. Gallup polls reported in 2019, so this was before the COVID-19 pandemic, this was in January, that church membership is down 70% since 1999. It has also been reported that 80% of teens upon graduating high school leave the church when they go off for college. Uh, This is the one I found most startling. This is from um, the State of Theology from Legionnaire uh, Ministries. 40% of American evangelicals, so this is people who say they go to church at least twice a month, when asked if Jesus um, was just a good teacher and not God, believed that the statement was true. And I believe that for many of us, as we've grown up in the church, we can think of these statistics as showing things that we've experienced in our own lives. Perhaps you've known friends that you grew up with or family members that were a part of the church for a long time and then seemingly abandoned the faith. Statistics like these have contributed to what um, some of you might be familiar with is called the rise of the nuns. And these nuns are the people that when asked what their religious preference is, simply answer none. These people are not saying that they're atheists or agnostics. They're saying that they have no religious affiliation at all. And this is a huge contrast to previous generations when surveyed that would at least culturally or by heritage or by their family claim a religion. And so it's estimated right now that 25% of adults in the United States identify as these nuns. While there are many things we could discuss that cause the rise of the nuns and departures from the church, I believe that we could summarize that one of the main causes is that we have failed to pass on the faith. Our lives and discipleship have become so individualized that we fail to disciple the next generation. And in God's word, we see that the image bearers of God that were intended not only for relationship with God, but also with one another in community. And so throughout scripture, we see this importance of knowing God's word, words that he has given to us as a gift. And the truth is that if we don't know God's word, how could we ever hope to pass on the faith to the next generation? And in Deuteronomy, we encounter a group of God's people that have been poorly equipped by the previous generation. We know this from some practical things as well. It's not until they enter the land in Joshua that they're even circumcised, which is the covenant sign. This would be like if we had an entire generation of the church where no one had been baptized or feasted on the Lord's table. So during the years of wandering in the wilderness and grumbling and complaining, this new generation is about to enter the promised land. They've heard the testimony of the work that God did to free their parents and their grandparents from slavery in Egypt. And for many of them, they grew up and were born in the wilderness. 
And Moses, who had been their leader, God's prophet, is not going to be going with them. It will be up to the next generation to own their faith and know God's word and to even pass it on to the future generations. So as Israel makes their final preparation to enter the promised land, they are saying goodbye for many of them, the only life they knew. Commentators estimate that at least 50% of the people entering the promised land would have been born in the wilderness. And so we find ourselves in somewhat of a similar place. The statistics I share before, I believe, show this. We're not standing waiting to enter a promised land, but we share a similar crisis of passing on the faith. And similarly, we've been some of us, many of us, have been equipped poorly by the previous generation to, that was passing on the faith to us. And so we struggle with discipline, we struggle with knowing God's word, and we struggle ultimately for most of us with consistency. So God's word teaches us how we are to live in a fallen world, and we struggle to conform our lives to his word. And in Deuteronomy, the passage we'll be looking at this morning, we see these same concerns being addressed for the people of God. And God provides for his people his word. And in the passage we'll read in a moment, we see that his commandments, his statutes, and his rules. And in God's word, he teaches us how we are to live. And so the main idea that we'll be looking at this morning is this big idea that has the divine provision, the thing that God has given us. And it's because God has given us his word that our lives should be shaped by it. From our passage in Deuteronomy this morning and from that big idea, we're going to look at three ways that we should, that our lives should be shaped by God's word. They're outlined for you in your bulletin. First, we will look at that we should listen to God's word. Second, that we should be diligent with God's word. And third, that we should be transformed by God's word. So if you look with me now at Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it might go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as fontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord and it was given for our good. You join me in prayer. Our father, um, the statistics we read a, a couple moments ago um, can seem startling. Um, we think of people and friends and family that we've had that have abandoned the faith. We think of ways um, in which we wish we had been discipled better. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts from any bitterness. Um, that as we look at your word this morning, we would do so longingly um, that we might better know your commandments, your statutes, and your rules. That we might know better how to live 
um, in light of that you are our God and we are your people. Lord, I pray that um, we would have attentive ears as we hear your word and that our lives would be better shaped um, to reflect um, your word that you have given us and the commands that you have given. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. My, my first point, that first point for you in the bulletin is that because God gives us his word that we should listen. In our passage for this morning, we encounter God providing for his people a command as the new generation about to enter the promised land. And the teaching that's being given through Moses is to define how the people are going to live now that they're entering the land after 40 years in the wilderness. And we see in verse 1, if you look back, that the, the entire goal is that God's people might do what they are commanded. And Moses' teaching tells them the posture of how they are to do what they are commanded. So why should what should God's people do? Look back with me at verse 3. Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 6 reads, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the second time in this passage, it's first mentioned in verse 1 and 2, that the people are to be careful to do what it is they are commanded. Essentially, we could boil it down that before the people of God lies a path of a blessing in life and curses in death. And these commandments, these statutes and rules refers to the whole counsel of God's word that's been given to his people, the directions that they are to be his treasured possession. And this is given to God's people as a gift. And all of scripture we know is a gift from God. And in Deuteronomy 5, just before this, we see Moses repeat the Ten Commandments to this new generation that's about to enter the promised land. This is a summary of God's law. This is a summary of how they are to live. And God's desire is that this new generation would be obedient. And if you look at Deuteronomy 5.29, um, probably on the same page of your Bible, we, we see what God's heart is for his people when he says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God wants them to keep the heart that they have in the wilderness as he's prepared them to enter the promised land. And God is looking to tell his people how they ought to live. They should live as people who hear God's word and obey it. And in Hebrew, the word Shema is what means to hear or to listen. And Shema in Hebrew implies hearing and obeying, to hear and to respond to what is given. And so to hear God with no obedience is as if you did not listen to him at all. This is like when a parent tells a child, don't touch the hot stove. The desire of the parent is not simply that the child would hear them. The desire of the parent is that the child would obey them, that they would hear the words and stop reaching their hand towards the hot stove. So God gives his word that we might hear and obey it. But this listening and obeying is farther defined for us in God's word. We are given the posture of how we should listen to God's word in our passage today. And so what is this posture of how we should listen and obey? Look back with me at verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. We, we listen to God and to his word that he has given us with fear. 
And in the pages of Scripture, we encounter the very words of God. Fear of the Lord is something that the Bible talks about from beginning to end. It is absolutely central to understanding the distinction that exists between the Creator, who is infinitely holy and just, and the creatures that He has made, His image bearers. So in the, in the pages of scripture, we read things like that the beginning of wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord, that the Lord encamps around those that fear him. A true fear of the Lord is when you realize that you cannot run from God, that he is perfectly holy and just, and your only option of how to live is to follow him, is to run to the loving embrace of your father. It is to join in the cry of the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The fear of the Lord is to know that God is your Father who loves you and is perfectly holy, who, as Hebrews says in chapter 12, that God disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son from whom he receives. His fear of the Lord was to bring the right ordering of God's people. God promised to bless them in the land if they would be obedient and loyal. And this previous generation was disobedient. What will this new generation do? And we see throughout scripture that God's love is steadfast and his mercy increasing when Israel continues to sin even after they're disobedient in the land that the Lord promised them. Because one of the beauties of the gospel is this, is that God continues to be faithful even when we are unfaithful. In Deuteronomy, God is beginning to prepare the story that he's telling from the foundations of the world that his son will come and be the faithful one. He will be the faithful Israel. One of my heroes in the faith is a man named Charles Spurgeon. And he once said, to me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice. And I do not hear it without Ah, the posture is to be a posture that has the fear of the Lord. And here's our first big point. Because God gives us his word, this is his divine provision, we should listen. And that listening means we don't just listen and nod our heads and move on, but that we actually listen and are changed and obey to truly, miss, to truly listen means we approach God's commandments, his statutes, his rules with a posture of holy fear. When we read God's word, we encounter the very words of God who spoke all things into existence. How could we not then read it with awe? We can picture it this way. Um, when, when I was growing up, my dad would frequently say this phrase, Listen to me now and hear me later. It drove me nuts as a child. I've caught myself, um, as I've been a father for two years, I've said it a couple of times now. Um, This was my father's way of looking to gain my sister and I's attention. We knew that when dad said, listen to me now and hear me later, that we were expected to do something. In the phrase, listen to me now and hear me later, it implies that listening to the words of our father would require obedience. Listen to me now. When you get home, you need to do your chores before your friend comes over. Hear me later. If you do not do it, there will be consequences. I'm expecting obedience. I'm also looking out for your good. 
So when I hear this phrase that my father expected obedience, I knew that deftly listening to the things that my father were telling me were not for my good. It was for my good to listen to him now, that I might hear him, that I might obey him later. And God is looking for this next generation, the Israelites about to enter the promised land. He is looking for them to listen and obey. And the same message is true from God's word for us today. We do not stand as a new generation waiting to enter from the wilderness to the promised land. But God has given us his word that we might listen and obey. That our very lives might be shaped by our listening to his word. And Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 has become one of my my favorite verses. Uh, The students in the youth group will know because I quote it a lot as we're going through the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews verses 1 and 2 say, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We live in a moment of redemptive history that we do not wait for the Son of God to come. We do not wait for a promised land with milk and honey. We know the joyful news. We know that Jesus has come as the faithful one on our behalf, a faithfulness that we could never accomplish on our own. The law gives us conviction of sin. It cannot give us new hearts. But in the new covenant that Jesus comes and brings, he gives us new hearts. Or as Jeremiah 31 says, uh, verse 31 and following, that his law would actually be written on our hearts. That we might be changed by the Holy Spirit coming into us. And so we don't wait for a promised land that has battles and war. But we wait for the new heavens and the new earth when all things will be set to right. We could also think of James 1.22 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The Apostle James goes on to illustrate this point by comparing it to someone who looks in a mirror and then they instantly go away forgetting what they looked like. So if you go when you you read your Bible and the listening to it doesn't have any obedience, there's no shema, there's no um, action that comes from it. It's simply just looking and then leaving and not remembering, not meditating, not memorizing what you've read. It's like looking in the mirror. It's of no use if you don't actually remember what you saw. And so how do we listen, church? Do you listen passively as you might listen to a podcast or TV show in the background? Or when you come to God's word, do you come ready to submit to the living God who speaks through his word? Do you come ready to hear and obey? We know that all scripture is God breathed you for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Are we seeking in our life to be equipped by God's word in this way? If we come to God's word ready to listen, we will see ourselves and our church taught and reproved and corrected and trained. And last week, Pastor Michael challenged the church to begin spending time in God's word daily. And I would like to encourage each of you that as you read, come ready to hear the very words of God and come ready looking that you will obey him, your God who created all things. Because only in the pages of God's word do we encounter the goodness of the gospel. Do we see the redemption that is offered to our sin? And as Jesus says in the gospels, all of scriptures testify to him. We've seen that 
like God's people about to enter the promised land, that we should listen and obey his word. And listening and obedience always go together. Let's continue now to my second point. Because God gives us his word, this is the provision that God has given that we're talking about. We should be diligent. The next couple of verses that we'll kind of focus on are verses 4 through 6. And I believe many of us are pretty familiar with these. This section of Deuteronomy is commonly referred to as the Shema, which we've already discussed means to hear with implied obedience. In this confession, we read of who God is and a call to be committed to him. My hope is that as we read this, as we reread this, that we might feel called into greater worship and affection toward our great God who loves us. Look with me again at verse 4 to start. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here we read an explanation of the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. Our great covenant Lord is the one and only this, there is no one else like him. No one else can even compare to him. This is a superlative one. The one, the Lord, when it's in all caps in your Bible, refers to the personal and covenant name, Yahweh. And Yahweh, he's not the brand name of some cosmic corporation. A way we can picture this together is that you know precisely who is being referred to. This is a personal and covenant name. And so we have some things culturally where people can be identified by even just a single name or a title. And we all might instantly know who we're talking about. This first example is basketball. Not a big basketball fan. I'm not looking to argue anybody on who the greatest player of all time is. But as I was growing up, anytime someone said the greatest basketball player of all time, Almost everybody would have answered Michael Jordan. Or, historically, it's been that the king of rock referred to Elvis Presley. Or, if you hear, he who must not be named, it sounds really abstract and mystic, but we all know it's referring to the villain in Harry Potter. If you have anyone who in your life who's ever read the books or watched the movies, I'm sure you come across that, even if you have not. And the names of these people, whether real or fake, refer to a person that is captured in our mind. So here when we read that the Lord is one, we're not talking numerically about the Lord, but we're talking that there is no other like him. He is perfectly unique. There is no one like Yahweh. For this new generation hearing this command to listen and obey, the first point we looked at, and this complete singularity of our God, would clearly mean that Yahweh will not share his glory. And the people are about to go and enter a land of religious plurality, not unlike our own. And Yahweh alone is God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Yahweh is his personal name. Yahweh alone is God. The Lord is the one who had freed you from slavery in Egypt and who sustained you in the wilderness. Our response to God is to be total and complete. He does not share his glory with anyone. And we do this because he first loved us. First John 4:19 says we love because he first loved us. We we respond with hearts of gratitude because of the mighty acts of God. In the small ways of freeing God's people from slavery in Egypt to the big 
um, world-saving events of Christ dying on the cross, our response is because God has acted in love and mercy towards us, towards his people. And next, I want you to look again with me at verse 5. This is the part of the Shema that I think we might be most familiar with. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this is what Jesus quotes in the Gospels when he's asked by a teacher of the law, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So I'd like for us to briefly now together look at each of these loves in turn. First, we see that we are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And in Hebrew, lev, the heart, was considered the seat of intellect, will, and emotions. And this demand with loving the Lord with all of your heart excludes any half-heartedness. It excludes any division of heart. It excludes any possible affection or love for anything else. Nothing else can take the place of God. And our love for the Lord is to be complete. This is a very loyal love. This shapes our affections, our wills, and how we live. And second, we see that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. And the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. And this is the same word that's used to describe when God breathes, when God nefesh, life into Adam. When he breathes a a living soul, breath into him, he forms him from the dust of the ground. And this is used in scripture, this Hebrew word nefesh, to refer to all living creatures. This is life itself. So together these two words, lev, meaning heart, and nefesh, meaning soul or breath, depict a love that pervades the entire person. There is nothing left outside of the realm of this love. And third, we see that this love is to be with all of your might. And in Hebrew, might is translated from the word mode, meaning might or effort or exceedingly. And this love is to be a love that is of the entire person to excess all of your effort. This is to be our constant reflection. This is a response that requires the whole person, the deepest roots of your life. Or as verse 6 says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Our love is built upon the confession of who our God is, that he alone is God, that he is personal, loving, and that there is no one like him. And we are to love him with our whole person, with our heart, our lev, and our soul, nefesh, with all of our might, exceedingly, with all of our effort. And so this is the the second point that I have for you, is because God gives us his word, we should be diligent. This includes every part of our life. And to be diligent means there is no half-hearted devotion because there's no one else like our God. There's no one else who could deserve the devotion. And when we read God's word, we encounter the very words of the only God. We can picture this second point in the following way. 
This command to love the Lord is linked with the previous command to listen and obey. This is intended to promote in God's people love and loyalty or affection and commitment. And these two things are also what makes a good and strong marriage. A marriage with only passion and love and affection cannot sustain the days of trouble. It will fall apart as time carries on. And on the other hand, a marriage with only commitment that does not have love that grows is like a partnership of obligation. It's simplistic. It's just your mutual benefit. But a good marriage always has both love and affection and loyalty and commitment. It cares for the other. It carries them on their heart. And a good and strong marriage that has that loyalty, it's not an obligation or a burden, but life together is a blessing. It's good. It's not good for them to be alone, but it's good for them to be together. And our Lord desires a relationship with his people that has like a good marriage, love and loyalty or affections and commitment. Or as Jesus says in the Gospels, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So this means that we are not merely to be spectators of a divine show, but the recipients of God's story. That There's actually something that should change in us because he is our God. Knowing his commandments, his statutes and rules equip us to live in his world. They equip us that we might worship and enjoy him. Your heart, your soul and might shape your character and decisions. So church, if you love the Lord with your total commitment, your heart, your intentions, with your total self, your soul to total excess, all of your might and effort, this will be seen as a reality in your life. Your affections are shaped through a lifetime of study of God's word. Diligence cannot be crammed. Diligence is consistent. The diligence in study we are to have is over a lifetime with our whole person, in community with one another, reading God's word, memorizing God's word. And this is a work of God's grace in our life. For the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6, they face a moment at which everything is about to change as they enter the promised land. And the application given to them is to have God's word on their heart. So let me ask you, church, is God's word on your heart? Do you memorize scripture? Can you meditate on it all the days of your life? I think for many of us, this spiritual discipline of scripture memorization, we've mainly seen practiced by children in Sunday school and maybe teens going on a mission trip. And I would like to encourage you that this is one of the most important spiritual disciplines that you can practice in your community group, in your discipleship group, with your spouse, with your family, with close friends. How can you begin this discipline of memorizing scripture? I'd like to share three basic approaches that I found helpful. I'll have more resources coming in the Wednesday email as well, but just for time right now, I'd like to just name three. The first method is really simple. Read, 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 read. And what I mean by that is keep reading the same verse over and over again. You can make it the wallpaper on your phone. You can put it as a post-it note somewhere in your house. But the high repetition of reading, eventually you've noticed that you've memorized it. 
And this can be a way of continuing to meditate on God's word throughout all the days of your life. The second method is we're blessed with a lot of technology, not only for this live stream, but also applications. I have an app on my phone called Verses that is wonderful. It makes scripture memory easy. It gives you reminders. It pops up with different ways. So depending if you're a a visual learner or a repetition learner, however you learn best, there's ways and systems like that. The Verses app is very similar to any of you who have used Quizlet where it has those different things. But you can even partner that together and make a group to memorize scripture together and keep each other accountable, work on things together. And then the third method I want to list is just the old school method. And that's simply write it on a three by five card, stick it in your pocket, keep it in your pocket until you memorize it. When you pull out your phone, read it. Put it on your bathroom mirror, read it. Every time you encounter it or run your hand across it in your pocket, just read it. And you'll find that over time, you're able to memorize so much more than you ever thought you could. But that diligence cannot just be crammed. We have seen that, like God's people about to enter the promised land, that we should listen to his word. And that listening and obedience go together. And that our entire person, our love and loyalty, our affections and our commitment should be shaped by God's word. That we should be diligent. Let's continue on now to my third and final point. And that's because God gives us his word, we should be transformed. And in this section, we're going to focus on verses 7 through 9. This this is to the next generation. This is answering the question you might be anticipating. If you were even an Israelite sitting on the precipice of entering the promised land of like, wait, how are we to do this? What does this actually look like? to live in the land in these directions that God is giving us. They watch their parents' generation waste their affections on other things. How will we love our God? Look back with me at verse 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as fontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In these couple of verses, we see a rapid sequence of verbs. Teach, talk, sit, walk, lie down, rise, bind, write. And here is how this next generation is going to live in the promised land. Here is how God wants his people to shape. And this isn't a laundry list of a million checkboxes and to-do lists. This is something that is formative. God's word actually forms us, as we just talked about, that our affections and our commitment, that love and loyalty in that long diligence, that faithful obedience of listening to God's word, it, it shapes us, it molds us. So here is how the next generation will live. We can see that God intends for his word to be a part of their daily lives, not only for the individuals, but also the family and the community and the nation as a whole. Let's look at a couple of examples in this text. First, we see in verse seven that we should teach diligently to our children. This is where we've been talking so much about passing on the faith. It's one of the the main things that Deuteronomy 6 is focusing on. And this ties back to verse 2, that your son and your grandson might know the Lord, that they might fear the Lord. And earlier I shared some statistics 
that were not meant to scare us, but to show that we share a similar crisis of passing on the faith to the next generation. And I mentioned that I believe that we cannot see these numbers as distant because many of us know stories of either friends or families or someone we've gone to church with that we have known. And this is not an issue for only some to care about. This is an issue for the entire body. Just a couple of weeks ago, as an illustration, we celebrated the baptism of a covenant child. And during her baptism as a congregation, we took a vow together. Pastor Michael asked the question to the congregation, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? To which we affirmed, we do. Passing on the faith is an undertaking of all of the people of God. This does not change. We are to instruct children and pray for them and to partner with their parents in raising them in the Lord. And my deepest hope is that for our children and our youth, that they might have mothers and fathers, uncles and aunts, brothers and sisters in the faith, that together one day we might celebrate our deepest prayer for them, is that there is a never a day they did not know the Lord. That their affections, their imaginations, their commitments would be shaped all of the days of their life to know and love the Lord, that the fear of the Lord would not sound scary, that the fear of the Lord, that they would hear a loving father's embrace who also disciplines his children because he loves them. This in studies over the last 20 years has shown that this 80% departure from the faith. I have countless books upon my shelf that cover this statistic. Most notably of them is Unchristian and Sticky Faith. And all of them give the same answer. It's twofold. We need better relationships in the church. We need the church as a whole to take the discipleship of children and youth seriously. It's a blessing. It's a fulfillment of obligation to the community even as we take vows together. And the second is if it's just if you expect just children's ministry and youth ministry to produce a disciple, it will never work. If they're not being discipled at home, it will never actually happen. To do just some rough, simplistic mathematics, in a given calendar year, most children's ministries meet for an hour to 90 minutes a week. It's 54 weeks in the year. So that means on the low end, only 54 hours of discipleship happens with a child. And maybe at best we can double that if it was two hours a week, assuming that no one ever misses. That's not enough. If, if schools met that way, We'd be worried about that our children would never learn anything. We have to have discipleship that happens in the home with partnership between the church and the parents. And this 40% of American evangelicals that believe that Jesus was only a good teacher and not God shows the verdict of the issue. That the previous generation did not teach them what God's word says about who Jesus is. This shows that we've had a shallow community. This shows that we might have even had a community in the church over the last couple decades about entertainment and not about discipleship or the word that has seemed to fall away of catechism. Our spiritual discipline of scripture reading or memorization, it's not just personal. It's for the entire community. And the command to teach the children includes even the people that do not have children. This means that the role of discipleship in the church and in the family 
is of utmost importance. You, mom and dad, are the primary discipler of your child. And in your home is where their affections develop and where they see what it looks like to have a commitment to the Lord, that love and loyalty. And next in our passage, we see those verbs continue. We see that these verbs take us from breakfast to bedtime. In all of our lives, we are to be remembering and being transformed by God's word. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you get up in the morning, all of our lives are to be shaped by how God teaches us to live. We must listen. We must be diligent. We must be transformed. But the example goes on to binding it on your hands, to be like fontlets between your eyes, to be carved over the doorpost or on your gate. This is called the Jewish practice of madash. And you can see that it is practiced to this day, even in some communities where you'll see people with a little box on their forehead. And in there is tiny scrolls with the Ten Commandments and a tiny scroll with the Shema, this passage written on it. And these are physical reminders that they have set up. And God is engaging his people that essentially whatever you have to do, keep it before your eyes. Keep his word before your eyes. These physical and practical reminders can be very beneficial. Like Pastor Michael mentioned last week of setting up a a Bible reading station in your house. A place where you go where you don't have distractions or your phone and it's set up for that. It would serve as a physical reminder in your home. Putting up a passage and memorizing it every time you go into the bathroom would be a reminder in your home. Similar to how Israel sets up Ebenezer's places. And Ebenezer's would be these these stone structures meant to recall an event of something that the Lord did. Make for yourself Ebenezer's in your home that remind you of God's faithfulness, that remind you of his word, that remind you of how you are to live. Because God gives us his word, we should be transformed. And to be transformed means we no longer live for ourselves, as Galatians 2.20 says, but that we live, the life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. To be transformed means that all of the days of our life, all of our routine, the rhythm of life, the liturgy of life is all shaped by God's word. And when we read God's word, we encounter transformation. A way that we could picture this that might be helpful to some of you is how your affections are shaped, how you learn to love the things you love or the things that you enjoy. A friend of mine uh, once told me about this conversation he had with his nine-year-old while driving in the car. And his son turned to him and said, Dad, what do you love? And the dad thought about it for a second and then responded, Well, I love Mommy and you and your sister and I love God. And the little boy kind of just like looked down for a second and looked back up at his dad and said, okay, yeah, but dad, um, what, what are the things that you enjoy? And then he said, well, I, I enjoy books, spending time with family, spending time with friends. I like running and I love rainy days. And then the little boy just went back to what he was doing in the car. And my friend's son then was asked a question by his father. And his father asked him, well, what do you love? And the little boy parroted back the things that his father said. Well, I love mommy. Uh, I, I love my sister. And I love you. And I love God. He said, well, what are, what are the things that you enjoy, though, son? And his son listed the same things that his father enjoys. That he enjoys running. That he loves rainy days. That he enjoys books and spending time with family. And having met this nine-year-old, 
The fact that he didn't say Legos or Minecraft was mind-boggling, as my friend told me this story. And this is even something that I'm seeing with my own son as he gets older. My son is currently two, and Walter, anything I do, he wants to do it. And so there's a really positive thing to that, because when I do something good or nice, my son wants to copy it. He wants to mimic me taking out the trash. But when he sees me do something bad, he also wants to mimic it. Or he wants to drink coffee because I drink coffee. And it's like, well, Walter, you can't have coffee. But our children look and see, and their affections are formed. Their imaginations are formed. Their commitments, their loves, their loyalties, all of these things that we've talked about are formed in the home. And so if the the disciples, the little disciples look around and see that God's word is to not be taken seriously, they'll never take it seriously. And so this is something that's on us as a whole community together, supporting mothers and fathers, being uncles and aunts in the faith, that we as a people might be a people shaped by God's word, that we might even pass on the faith, that we ourselves would be changed, that we can do this together as a people So church, do you feel prepared to pass on the faith? I know that sounds terrifying because I think for many of us, we think I've I've never actually been discipled well, or maybe I've really struggled with spiritual disciplines. I find X difficult. We We could all fill in the gap there. We could all fill in the ways that we find it difficult. And the reality is we need first to have our love and affections shaped. We need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and strength in order to actually pass on the faith successfully. So parent that might seem overwhelmed as I emphasize the discipleship or even person that serves in the children's ministry. The reality is that the passing on the faith, we all must first be equipped so that we can do it. So it's not something to be overwhelmed. It's not something that happens overnight Our whole second point was that this is something we cannot cram, but this is something with diligence that all, and my third point, all of the days of our lives are lived this way. When we sit, when we walk, when we talk, we talk and we show the real things and we seek to have a life that proclaims a love and a loyalty to the God, Yahweh, who is like no other. And so for this next generation in Deuteronomy, God is seeking to equip his people. And just like them, we find a lot of that hard and difficult. And maybe we don't feel as prepared as we like to be. Earlier in my sermon, I encouraged each of us to begin memorizing scripture. And for this last application, I don't have um, apps to recommend, methods to recommend. Um, I would just like to ask each of us that when we approach scripture, when we're coming to read it, that we would not come with our own agenda, but we would come ready to be transformed by God. That we would come ready to be changed, to have our, our hearts transformed for the things that we love to be made different, to more love what our Father loves. And in conclusion, in Deuteronomy, we read that God teaches his people through Moses, and God is looking to prepare his people to enter the promised land. And for this new generation to listen and obey diligently would mean they would need to know God's words and that they would need to be transformed by it. And ultimately, God's word needs to be on their heart. 
And we stand not before the promised land, but we stand before the unknown. We don't know what the future holds or where God will take his church, but we do know that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we stand as a community of beloved children bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We stand as heirs of the promises of scripture and the hope of the gospel. And we know how the story finishes for Israel. We know that they have rough times ahead, this generation that's about to cross into the promised land. And for times and seasons, their love and their loyalty wavers. And they're ultimately even led into exile. But again and again and again, God remains faithful. He is steadfast. His mercy increases. And he makes a way for them. And see... We, like Israel, can also struggle with unfaithfulness. And God sends his son, Jesus, who is the faithful one on our behalf, in a way of being faithful that we never could be because of our sin. And he is described as the faithful Israel. All of scripture testifies about Jesus. So when we read, we behold the good news of the gospel from beginning to end. The story that God is telling from the very foundations of the world all the way until amen. Because God gives us his word, our lives should be shaped by it. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, um, that in your word you speak. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would come to your word with awe. Lord, that we would um, come to it knowing that in, in these pages of scripture, that we hear your very words, that you speak to us. Lord, that you intend for us to, to love you with all of ourselves. We were made for it. We, we hunger for it. We thirst for it. Lord, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Lord, I pray that um, as a church, as a people, we would seek to love the children and the youth that you've given us in our church, that we would be discipled so that we can also disciple, that we would show um, what it is to be a follower of God, that we would show what it means um, to have an affection, a love, a commitment, and a loyalty to your word and to the things that you have done. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.